0: Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging.
1: This podcast is sponsored by the ASC Masterclass, a five-day seminar taught in Hollywood. Learn more at TheASC.com. Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. My name is Jim Hemphill. I'm a filmmaker and American cinematographer contributor, and I'm joined today by James Chrysanthus, ASC and GSC. He is an Emmy-nominated cinematographer and director, and he co-produced and directed No Subtitles Necessary, Laszlo and Vilmos, an award-winning documentary about two of the greatest directors of photography who ever lived. Laszlo Kovacs and Vilmos Zygmunt. James has been a diligent guardian of Zygmunt's legacy in the months since he died. Earlier this year, he worked with the Criterion Collection on a restoration of McCabe and Mrs. Miller, and he was one of the cinematographers on the new documentary Close Encounters with Vilmos Zygmunt. James and I will be at the American Cinematex Aero Theater in Santa Monica on Friday, September 23rd to present a double feature of the restored McCabe and Mrs. Miller and a 35 millimeter presentation of No Subtitles Necessary. A rare opportunity to see both movies on the big screen, which is, of course, the best way to appreciate and enjoy Vilmos, Laszlo, and James's exquisite work. If you're not in Los Angeles, though, No Subtitles Necessary is available on DVD and through VOD platforms like iTunes, and Criterion will be releasing The Restored McCabe and Mrs. Miller on Blu-ray and DVD this fall. Uh, you know, James, I want to start by asking you, before we get into any, all these movies, how you first became aware of Gilmore Zygmunt just as a moviegoer. You know, do you remember what the first film of his was that you, you saw and what you responded to in his work?
0: I think it was the movie Scarecrow. And I was you know, a moviegoer. Yeah. You know, I was interested in photography. I was doing photography. Still photography. I had not uh, picked up a movie camera at that point, though I shortly would after that. And um, I just heard that this was a great, cool film, a road picture. uh, These two hobos, Al Pacino, Gene Hackman, meet on the highway and travel across the United States. I had recently done that as a 19-year-old, traveling around the United States by motorcycle. A bit of a gypsy, a bit of an easy rider. And so movies about that subject, uh, you know, I knew something about living on the road and living on the edge. And uh, I went to the film, not knowing anything else about it, other than it was a road picture. And I said, oh, wow, this is so good. It's so right. It really captures the feeling of being on the road, uh, the difficulties of that. And also, but it captures the landscape. And it captures America. So it's a portrait of these two guys, but it's also a portrait of our country and what they go through. So I was transfixed by that, and I was aware that, oh director of photography vilmos Zygmunt. it's in that opening sequence which is so remarkable that almost was shot not quite by accident but unplanned that you know the light was so amazing the storm was coming up there on that california intersection and they decided to film the sequence and had to work very very quickly you know i found out later from vilmos that you know this is a storm blowing through. You've got to get it, and everything's going to change. So I just felt his intuitive, I realized from watching that scene that there's somebody behind the camera that intuitively understood what he needed to capture. And um, you know, a few years later, I had that experience myself in my own life as a cinematographer. I actually remember the day that I became a cinematographer. It was a similar condition. It was late afternoon. I was photographing a wheat harvest in Greece. And my cousins, my relatives, were harvesting wheat by hand on a mountainside at the end of August. A sickle. And making bushels of wheat and tying into the horses. And I realized I was photographing something that was very, very rare and unique. And suddenly in my mind, I was pre-visualizing, oh, I need a shot of this. And I need detail of that. And, oh, I need a wide shot. And get this before the horses leave. And so, you know, I realized that day I became a cinematographer. Later, I worked with Vilmos and could observe him working. And, um, you know, those those things I saw in Scarecrow, in that opening sequence and in the whole movie, I absorbed from him. He was a great, great teacher. And I was very fortunate myself to have uh, met him and exposed to him both as an artist and as uh, as, a, as a human being
1: well let's talk a little bit about that how did you first come to meet him and work with him
0: i'd made my that little golden wheat harvest film the life of a greek mountain village 36 years ago 1980, 82, i did that film and uh after i did the film i was i got it in a festival i sold it to pbs and uh a Hollywood director was at my table at this Houston Film Festival, and he said, uh, "So, kid, you uh, shot the film, you directed the film, you raised the money. It's a good, New Yorker. Um, you sold it to PBS." I said, "Yeah." He said, "And you're teaching college in Michigan?" I said, "Kid, they'll pay to do that work in Hollywood." <laughs> and in my life, I had didn't I never saw a route to Hollywood or to making movies that, that seemed impossible. I couldn't conceive of myself doing it, even though I knew there were people who were doing that. So. At a very late age of 30, I quit my job teaching in Michigan and went to the AFI, American Film Institute in Los Angeles, and kind of plunged into cinematography. And then I realized, this: oh, I'm going to be old to be starting over at the beginning, you know, I was loading and assisting and doing and gripping on things. And I went to my teacher, Howard Schwartz, ASC, who was a great cameraman and um, He'd worked on A Wonderful Life as an assistant. And he'd had a really interesting experience. And he'd introduced us to all to Vittorio Storaro and Steven Goldblad and Laszlo Kovacs. I gaffed for Connie Hall one day wow. on a workshop. Uh, Laszlo showed us Paper Moon. And Vilmos um, actually did, was not a visitor that year. But at the end of the year, I, I said to Howard, I said, you know, um, I'm going to do a second year film, but I really feel I should do an internship. Because I don't want to be an assistant cameraman for seven years and then operate every time. I mean, I'll be an old man before I get, you know, I'm shooting now. I'm ready. I feel I'm ready. Right. So he said, make a list. And the list was uh, Sven Nyquist, John Alonzo, Owen Roysman, Gordon Willis, Laszlo Kovacs, Conrad Hall, Vilmos Zygman. Quite a list. Yeah. Oh, and Caleb Deschnell, <laughs> Leon Caleb, the young guy. Right. <laughs> And Howard uh, was a character. He said, I don't think you and Gordon will get along. <laughs> I think we'd be, we'd be too combative. Right. So. But I'll see what I can do. So he got me assigned to Vilmos. And so I called Vilmos up and took a long time to get a hold of him, pre-cell phone days. Finally, he interviewed me. He saw my little film in Greece. He said, I'll take you on. And it was, we were going to work on the movie Nuts, to be direct, with Barbara Streisand, to be directed by Mark Rydell. Okay. But, and I said, oh, this is exciting, Barbara Streisand, drama, you know, Tom Stoppard play. But uh, Rydell got fired. Mm-hmm. She, he and Streisand didn't mix. And, you know, there was a history of Vilmos and Streisand from uh, Funny Girl. Uh-huh. You know.
1: what was the, what's the story behind that?
0: He got replaced by, the only time Vilmos was replaced by James Wong Howe. Vilmos was replaced by James Wong right. Howe. He, anyway, <laughs> old, old history. Um, so I said, oh, so I was too heartbroken, of course, because for them, there's just no, oh, too bad. For me, it was an opportunity. Right. A few weeks later, he called me and he said, Jimmy, I'm going to do a movie of George Miller, The Witches of Eastwick, Jack Nicholson, Susan Sarandon, Cher, Michelle Pfeiffer. And uh, so I got on that, but I had to fly myself to the East Coast, to Massachusetts, (laughs) put myself up. I had no, and I was broke as a kid, you know. And I got there and I made sure I was on location the first day of shooting at 530 in the morning. I was the first one there, and the location manager was there, and the van drove up with George Miller and Vilmos. Vilmos jumps on and says, Jimmy, hey, how are you? And he introduced me to George Miller. Now the production manager didn't want me on the film, so, <laughs> but Vilmos was very sharp, and you know that I became my internship on *Witches of Eastwick*, and uh, you know I learned so much. Uh, they had me do the video assist, you know, and um, breaking all the union rules, of course. So uh, later, uh, Vilmos uh, had me shoot inserts, um, and he and George saw that I was paying attention and, and I had the capabilities. So I shot little special effects. Time, I shot a time-lapse sequence of, and some snakes crawling over fruit and things like that. So s- silly stuff, but it had to match. It had to, it had to match. and It was anamorphic and, you know, big Vilmos and names on it. So you, uh, you want to be very, very good at what right. you do. Um, Vilmos was happy with that. They were, you know, George was happy. I thanked George Miller. He was, was a godsend. Um, I got paid, you know. <laughs> it was my first real paying gig. And then later, uh, after that, Vilmos uh, hired me. I was an assistant cameraman on some music videos for him and uh, commercials, and also I uh, operated on uh, commercials and shot second unit on commercials for him. And again, I thought, this is great, shooting for Vilmos Digmund, but it was always 4 a.m. calls, top of a building, freezing or raining, 747 landing on the lens at LAX. <laughs> so that was, uh, that got me going. And then I went back to my low-budget stuff. And, but I realized I'm in, I was armed with an arsenal of information and knowledge that I'd absorb from seeing the best of the best filmmakers in the world working. Right. Watching Nicholson and Sarandon work, watching George Miller work, watching Vilmos. And you, I learned what a key grip can do, what a gaffer like Colin Campbell, who did Blade Runner, what he could do. I learned so much from these folks. They were so generous. So it was that technical knowledge, artistic knowledge, but also generosity of spirit that I learned. And when I went into my low-budget stuff, I took that with me. And uh, then later, you know, only then did I really learn the story of Laszlo and Vilmos and how they came up. How they came up in this Mm -hmm. no-budget, low-budget world in the underbelly of Hollywood and crawled their way up, you know, for 10 years before Easy Rider of Laszlo, you know, before The Hired Hand, before McCabe and Mrs. Miller, all that went into it.
1: Yeah. Well, how did you first become aware of that story and what led you from that to you know make No Subtitles Necessary?
0: I'd heard little bits of it, but only fragmentary bits of the Laszlo and Vilmos story. Toward the end of Witches of Eastwick, it was a 100 day, I was on a 104 day shoot, the longest movie I'd ever been on. And we were shooting out in Beverly Hills at at the the Doheny Mansion, and there was a lunch break coming. And Vilmos suddenly said, and he was very out of character because he he never cares about lunch or eating. He just wants to work. He said, "Um, today we're having a long lunch. And George Mo said, well, why Vilmos? Why are we having a long lunch? Today is the 30th anniversary of the Hungarian Revolution. There'll be a long lunch. And he walked out. <laughs> it was a huge set. And we were over budget, over schedule. It was shocking. I've never seen that before or since. We went out in the, in the courtyard. There was a garden area. And Hungarian people were coming. And they had picnic baskets. And they had food and wine. And they laid out a banquet. Laszlo Kovacs arrived with his young wife, Audrey Kovacs. And Laszlo and Vilmos presided over this banquet and they toasted the revolution and the friends and family they'd lost. And it was a shame that their country would never be free. Because this was 1986, mm-hmm. the wall hadn't come down. And I was standing behind them and I was like, wow, what a good story. Somebody should make a movie about that. I thought that. But of course I didn't have the resources to do it. So if that was the seed for it. Mm-hmm. And then I researched it and found out more about it. And now, flash forward, I had developed my own career music videos, movies, so forth, Emmy nominations, blah, blah, blah. I worked in, worked on, uh, on Chicago, did the additional photography in Chicago. I'm very proud of that. Um, had a, a daughter, raised a family. In 2006, autumn 2006, Robert Altman passed away. And it kind of hit me like a bolt of lightning. I said, oh. Oh, I should have interviewed him. What's the matter with you? And so then, uh, Dr. David Kaminsky and Fred Gooditch, ASC, had a Cinematographer's Day uh, event in December 2006. It was about a month after Waltman passed. And it was um, Two Legends and a Memory Laszlo Kovacs, Vilmos Zygmunt, and the late John Alonzo. And they showed a documentary. In progress, so I'm nearly finished about Alonzo. And I learned so much about John because I didn't, you know, he had a Mexican American heritage, and I didn't realize he'd been an actor. He was in The Magnificent Seven, and he'd been an accomplished character actor. But in that Hollywood of the '50s and '60s, he could only rise to a certain level. So in Magnificent Seven, John Alonzo is the noble, strong, brave peasant of the village. He has big close-ups of Steve McQueen. Um, and he, but he, I realized his journey was so interesting, he had to leave that and start over and became a cameraman. So I thought, that's so fascinating. And then I, and Laszlo was sitting next to me, and we had watched the film, and I looked at him, and we were talking, and I thought, this is so great. You know, I'm a colleague of his now. And, and he, um, I looked at him, and I realized he was ill. And then the the seminar started. He patted me on the hand. He said, Oh, I got to go on stage now, Jim. And he got up and went on stage with Vilmosh and David Kaminsky and Fred. And Bob Fisher, the cinematography journalist, was sitting there right in the next seat. You know, he, Laszlo got up and Bob was looking at me. And he said to me, You're going to make that documentary, aren't you? And I decided, Yes, at that moment, I decided. December two thousand six, started filming in February two thousand seven. We premiered at Cannes in May two thousand eight. It happened very quickly.
1: And uh, I, I know this is sort of a big question, but what were some of the things that you learned making the documentary about both Laszlo and Vilmos that you didn't know?
0: Well, the the depth of struggle. Yeah, is you can't uh, you just can't enunciate that you can't. Can't really verbalize it what they went through. You know, as film students in Hungary in you know, a revolution, filming, nearly getting killed. I mean, coming within you know a, a, a hair's breadth of death if they'd been caught with that film. And you know how Vilmos saved Laszlo's life, you know, by giving pulling two watches out of his, giving his father's watch. Vilmos gave his father's a uh, gift to him, a stopwatch. He gave it to Laza. Here, put this on. Give it to the Russian soldier. And Vilmos had this plastic watch. And so, you know, the Russian soldier said, you know, was, was grabbing all these refugees, and you know, they were stripping them, basically, of their belongings. And and he didn't like the stopwatch. It was old. But he liked the plastic watch Vilmos had. He gave back the Omega. <laughs> Was these little details of friendship, and and you realize, you know, they were they became friends through that ordeal. They were not friends; they were acquaintances before that, and then they were bonded through that that ordeal. And then they were separated, and then they came back together in Hollywood after you know struggling and the, as immigrants in America. I mean, the story has such resonance today of what immigrants go through. Um, it had resonance for me personally my family were Greek-Americans, and the stories of, of difficulty, exploitation, you know, hardship uh, really resonate. It's a, it's a truly American story.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, one of the things I think that's great about it, and one of the reasons I would really uh, just encourage anyone who's listening to this to see it, if possible, on the big screen at the Arrow, and if not, watch it at home, is it's a really unusual movie in that it both works. If you are a diehard cinephile and you know a ton about movies, it's great. And because of that aspect you're talking about, it also has this kind of universal human struggle story in it. That's just and it's very inspiring. It's a really
0: yeah. That was the, I made the film as a general audience film, mm-hmm. and I did not make it as a. Dick Donner said, you know, uh, they were world famous in Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> and I just wanted to drop the in Hollywood portion right. off and just make them famous, you know, or you know, their story famous. Uh, I was always interested in the film. You know, and, you know, people said, well, how do you pick clips of, of, of you know, they did so much good work. The problem right. was the poverty of riches. Right. It, was, it, was, it was, we had so much great stuff, and it was almost impossible, and it really pulled my hair out, trying to figure out what, what clips are represented, but Elisa Bonara, the editor, and I finally, I said, look, we have to do the clips that really tell their story. And the thing I discovered through making the film was the influence of their lives. Life doesn't imitate art. Art is, comes from your life. And I really found it resonant in both their lives that their greatest cinematography was directly related to their own deep experiences. Lazlo even said it in his interview. That he didn't realize it at first, but he talked about going across the United States, his first time seeing the country. He'd been up in New York, in New York State, working on a maple syrup farm or some terrible job. It was brutal. He'd been exploited, basically, paid nothing by people who were being kind to refugees. <laughs> so he got fed up with that, and he took a bus ride across the northern United States. And he said he sat at the front of the Greyhound bus which, if you think about its two four zero. It's a nice, good, widescreen composition. And he said he just let the country roll over him. He just took it in. And he then said later, he said he didn't realize how much that influences movie making, that the, the the landscape, the situation, location, is a character in itself. It has so much to do with what the people in the film are feeling and doing. And that, that's a basic, it's, it seems elementary, but right. sometimes it's... It's something, there it is. And so you think about he did in Five Easy Pieces, which after all is a low budget film, but has this incredible breadth and easy rider. Sure, I mean, those, the, those two films alone. Then again, Paper Moon, you know, which really captures, which is in 133, <laughs> it's not even in widescreen, but still captures the breadth of the country. Um, I mean, and the same with Vilmos. Vilmos is... um, You know, finding out that Vilmos as a child, as a 13-year-old, had been bedridden, I think he had diphtheria, who was seriously ill, and bedridden for three months, and his uncle gave him the book of photographs of Eugene Dulevich, and her beautiful pictorial backlit. And he got interested in photography from that. And you think that those backlit, beautiful backlit photographs, um, it, you see close encounters, you see where he went. And, you know, Vilmos's interest in photography may have been deeper from an earlier age. Laszlo's skills were, I think, different. He, he was a great observer, and also he was an extrovert. And I think he, his compassion uh, for the actors and the process may have been, early in their career, may have been greater than Vilmos. Vilmos, though, was a vividly well-developed pictorialist from an early age. You look at his still photos that he took as a teenager. They're astonishing. His own self-portrait, Vilmos's world, which is sort of, he didn't know anything about Andrew Wyeth. I don't think that Andrew Wyeth painting been painted yet, or he certainly didn't know about it. But Vilmos in you know, a landscape, brooding, thoughtful, um introverted it's there right in, in his early photography and he, he, those qualities he you see in his films you know different than László. they had different you know different different qualities but they are both um you know they both really channeled consciously and unconsciously channeled their experiences into their art it's so clear the deer hunter astonishing you know it's it's Eastern European emigres, you know, in America, and those steel mills. And you think, if you change the cars to Eastern Europe, <laughs> it would be Eastern Europe. McCabe and Mrs. Miller, uh, I'll I quote Vittorio Storaro from my film, he said, Vilmos brought Hungarian culture into America. So you see the people in, living at the turn of the century America on, on the frontier, um owed a lot to his experience in Hungary. Um and the pictorialism, his his uh knowledge of painting, impressionism, Georges de Latour, the the, uh, the Renoir, you, know, you really see it, Degas. That uh bathhouse sequence in McCabe is right out of Degas, you know, the, the bathers. It's uh it's a, an astonishing achievement. Um the whole, and of course, the whole story of the flashing, we can get into that, but, you know, how Altman and Vilmos really created something so unique. Um, I think when I saw McCabe, I saw McCabe and Mrs. Miller, you know, a short time after, even though the movie had been done before, but because of the college, I was in college, I saw McCabe and Miller in college. I don't know if it was 16 or 35, I can't remember, but that was, that was breathtaking. Um, the marriage of this unusual drama satire, you know, that, that turned the Western upside down, flawed characters, who you don't know what's going to happen. Over all the overlapping dialogue, the poignant, lush Leonard Cohen songs, and this amazing photography. That you feel the way. I mean, I, I've never seen a movie where you could feel it is wet. It is cold. The photography exuded that, and I didn't know anything about how technically it was done. I just knew that this was something different. And I think every cinematographer you talk to, uh, and that's got to be a, a movie on the top 10 list. Right. To me, it's in my top two. Yeah. but I, I, I rank it pictorially with something like Lawrence of Arabia sure. and McCabe, and Mrs. Miller. Um, it's, it's just an astonishing touchstone. And that's why I'm so happy. Uh, I'd asked Warner Brothers years ago about restoring McCabe. when well, Vilmos was you know, with us. And because of, you, know, you see so many bad prints of it, and the, and the DVD is not very good. It's, stand, it's standard definition at that. And I remember someone at Warner Brothers said, uh, oh, the negative's no good. And I didn't contradict them. I said, no, you're well, the answer would have been, no, you're wrong. That's the way it's supposed to look. Right. So even today, the film is so unusual that modern people don't understand what was being attempted. They say, oh, this, it's all foggy. And <laughs> yeah." <laughs> so, I, mean, I mean, I told Vilmosh this, and he started laughing. You know, you thought, oh, what do they do? Now, an interesting thing I've noticed, having seen the I've seen McCabe and Mrs. Miller, I'm sure, 30, 40 times. Sure. But after I did my uh, internship with Vilmosh, uh, I was doing music videos, and I did a lighting uh, cinematography workshop at the Calvary State University at San Luis Obispo. And they said, we have some uh, funds. We can invite a, invite a guest. So I said, oh, let's invite Vilmos. So he did a master class lighting workshop with me. And we also had a mini film festival. So we asked we we had three nights at the local cineplex. We had a, a real movie theater. And Vilmos, we said, what films do you want to show? And He said, well, McCabe. Close Encounters, and Deer Hunter. So in 360s, that's nice we had that. which so it was great. 35 prints. And the 35 print of McCabe, they said, was brand new. So I said, uh, oh, maybe we should check it. So we ran it over to AFI, screening room. And my wife and I went there with the projectors, and we started, just wanted to check the reels, make sure it looked good. you know. And it was breathtaking. Now, this is 1987. I remember, the film was 1971. Now, the print stocks had changed. Mm-hmm. And it was really, really gorgeous. And so we ended up watching the whole movie instead of just checking the reels. <laughs> so, and then went down. We were hungry. Went down the Gower Gulch to have some sushi. And we're sitting there. And my wife and I going, oh, it's so beautiful. It was stunning. That, it's just emotionally amazing. And, those, and I said, those Leonard Cohen songs are so perfect. And just at that moment, I heard Leonard Cohen's voice sit down next to me, and I turned, and there was Leonard Cohen. This happened. No accidents in life. And I fumbled. I said, "Excuse me, Mister Cohen. We're just well, don't mean to bother you here at lunch, but we were just looking at McCabe and Mrs. Miller, thirty-five print, and just want to say you're you're so beautiful, your your songs, and we lo- we love your, your work." And he said, "Oh, I thank you very much." And, Introduced, I'd like to meet Dominique and this angel, angelic woman leaned forward to 20 years old or something. So, so we showed the, when we showed the print to Vilmos at the workshop, he was dumbstruck. He said, Jimmy, this looks better than the release print that we did in the 70s. Must be the new print stocks. And he said, this is more like the answer print. This is more like what I wanted. Because the film, when it had been released, you know, there's the, the vagaries of printing.
1: Well, that's what I had heard that Vilmos was never really happy. You never the happy.
0: Prints. It also the first releases, the first prints of the film, they weren't printed right. It was all it was kind of caused a kerfuffle because uh, he got some bad reviews. You said, "Oh, the film's muddy," and, you, know, and the, you know, even the laboratory people didn't know what to make of the film, how to print it. Um, because it was it really was radical what they did with the flashing and the fogging of the film, it was radical. So he he said this looks this eighty seven uh, release print. He said this looks like the answer print. This is really good. And we talked about certain other things in the film, uh, especially um, the snow sequence and how that was done, and that he was never really happy with. So we'll see. Did you see the film? I have not seen it yet. Yeah, well, I'm Sorry. going to do a preview. I, I saw um, during the work, I didn't see the finished work. I gave notes on where they were in progress. And I want to see what Lee Klein at Criterion did with it. But, I mean, there's just two things going on. The, the, the vagaries of of, op, of of chemical optical process. When it works, it's great. When in, in the process of release printing, the, you know, they they can be very uneven. So you would have reels that were... You know, a certain kind of blueness and a certain quality of red and in the next reel. That blue has become toward sort of green, cyan, and the, you know, and the red has become orange or yellow. And so, finally, I think for cameramage, Vilmos was being awarded the, the life achievement award Camera cameramage. He made a print, and we called the Academy print. And he went in and spent time timing it to his liking. And that was the print that was used by Criterion as the guide. And I saw it, in fact I saw it in March uh, at the Lemley with Catherine um, uh, Altman and, um, uh, and the actors from, uh, from the film. And, it, and it, really, it really is beautifully balanced print. The problem with 4K, rest- digital restoration of an optical chemical process, is that when you scan the original negative, you get all the sharpness of it, and that's the problem. You get the sharpness of the grain. So then it's a process of trying to soften that grain to get it back to where it was. Because um, the grain is, is much more diffuse and and it comes from optical printing process. You have two pieces of film interacting, and you, you know, print that to a third piece of film. And so the grain is completely randomized and is very soft. Uh, not so with digital scanning. So you have to be very careful. I've seen some restorations, I won't mention that that. They should, have sh- they should have softened the grain because it is not the original intention of the filmmakers to have all that grain super sharp. And, and, and for that matter, the super sharpness of the negative. So it's a balance trying to try find that. And I think uh, I'm, I'm, from what I've seen, I think Lee Klein and the group there did, did a good job. But I encouraged them to go darker. My main notes are I wrote extensive notes. And I said, Lee, do you notice none of my notes say too dark? Uh-huh. What does that tell you? I think you're just too bright overall. So don't be afraid. And this is also, the film was dark. You know, it was meant to be dark. And don't be afraid of that. Um, I think our modern sensibilities, there's a cultural shift in our, because of not just digital, just our, it just may be something that's happening culturally. When I saw uh, Vilmos's The Rose Mm -hmm. in 35 millimeter, (gasps) even Vilmos said, wow, that's really dark. Vilmos said this. That's really dark. He, it actually shocked him, uh-huh. how dark he went. But it did not was not too dark. So I think we have to remember as cinematographers not to not to uh, give in to the marketplace. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the same old thing. We want to see those actors. You know, right. the, like the old studio says, oh, don't don't make it too dark. You know, you, the cinematographer needs a service to service the story, and if it needs to be dark in this place and bright here, that's what you do. You know but don't make everything bright. It's a constant problem. I, mean, I remember Connie Hall talking about this. He said, they were complaining about his work, and he said, well, what's wrong with it? It's beautiful. Yeah, but it won't, it won't play in the drive-ins. <laughs> you know, the drive-in movie theaters were driving the cinematography. right? <laughs> and today we have a different, a, different, a different problem. I think it's the nature of digital photography, which tends to have very open shadows, you know, things on our phones, you know, people are, I think people are culturally used to looking at things that are brighter. Um, yeah. Maybe because they're looking at it on little phones and iPads and things and laptops and so forth. When you when you see things on the big screen, you don't need it bright. In fact, yeah. uh, I, I remember was, I was printing, in the printing days, I was printing a feature at Columbia and um, I had printed it. Where I thought it should be, it was. It was a, the film was a comedy, but it, had, it was a lot of night. It was dark and thriller aspects to it. And the director came in and um, had retimed it, made it bright. Happily, the head of post at Columbia, uh, Jimmy Honore, said, "What the f? WTF? What have you, what have you done to Jim's work? <laughs> it's Like, what are you doing? You don't want it that bright? It's a movie, yeah. you know." So I, I think partly it's that big screen, small screen, you know, um, aspect to it. And happily we have big screens at home, but again, there's no reason, you know, the, the systems we have are so good now. They have such latitude that there's no reason to pump up the brightness.
1: Right. Well, and yet, and this is getting off topic a little bit, but I just want to ask you about it. As someone who, uh, you know, has been a director of photography on a lot of television shows, you know, is there a challenge in the fact that just people watch tv the, the the even though we have these amazing tvs well, it's the
0: variety yeah you can't yeah. you can't worry about what people are watching uh. on you have i i i make the master my approach has always been when i'm when i'm making something for television or for a movie i imagine this is going to be 30 feet across that's how i color time it because the truth is it will be on some 4K television, you you know, because of the TVs have gotten, thank God, you know, the things I did years ago, I I, I timed the masters the way I thought they should be timed, because now you see them on television forever, you know, in HD, Mm -hmm. and now 2K and 4K and so forth. So yeah, there's still a challenge, but recently the show I did The Family for ABC, which was a drama, political drama, thriller, Shakespearean family drama. Um, I never had a complaint. It was a, the Jenna uh, uh, bands, excuse me, Jenna bands, the creator of the show, said, "I want oh, we love your photography. We, we want this darkness. We want you to experiment and don't feel constricted." And um, I never got a bad note from the network. And there's no interference in the photography, you know. And one time they said, well, that's pretty dark. I said, yeah, it's, I think, what are you looking at it? And I said, what are you looking at it on? On my computer. I said, don't look at it on your computer. You know, look at it on your uh, on a good iPad or, you know, or come and see the master. But, you know, I've had pretty good luck lately. I think 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it was more of a pain in the neck. Mm-hmm. You know, when the networks would interfere and pump up things and, you know, complain.
1: Well, getting back to McCabe and some of... Vilmos and Altman's innovations. Uh, I was wondering if you could sort of give a little bit of context of where Vilmos's career was at the time, and how he came to McCabe and Mrs. Miller, and and talk a little bit about specifically what it was that made that movie so audacious, and that collaboration between him and Altman so special.
0: From what I, from doing my research through from the film. Um, Laszlo had shot that cold day in the park for Altman, which actually was shot in Vancouver. It was uh, a moody, wet, you know, similar contemporary story, but similar photographically, without the flashing. Uh, Laszlo had become a hot item, you know, because of Easy Rider, and he was. And uh, Altman wanted to, Laszlo to shoot McCabe, not available, and he recommended Vilmos. Vilmos had shot. Uh, I think Red Sky at Morning, which I've, not such a great film, I think, not because of him, but, but he had also shot for Peter Fonda, uh, uh, The Hired Hand, which again, pictorially great, really. astonishing and really pure cinematography because they had no equipment. They had the camera and a few lights. And it's sort of amazing what he did with nothing. Um, and so I think that probably, and also Vilmush uh, had done... A short film called Prelude, which was Academy Award nominated. I don't know if it won the Oscar, but it, but it was a short, almost silent movie uh, late at night in a supermarket, I think down here on La Brea. Mm-hmm. And a man sees a woman in a supermarket, and it's about their sort of unspoken courtship. And totally visual. And then think about shooting in a supermarket. In those fluorescent lights in the '60s, <laughs> I don't know. And the film is pictorially really beautiful, and again, no budget. And I think that got Filmmus some notice, and but he'd been mostly doing commercials, and he's he said with wry irony, "Yes, I was the best at lighting a bottle of Coca-Cola of anyone." Mm-hmm. Know. Um, but I think the hired hand, which was very close, is again a period western, uh, close to McCabe, and and I'm. You know, Altman, in their initial meetings, came up, he asked, he wanted the photography to be different. Uh, and Vilmos um, had seen um, a film by Freddie Young, BSC, who'd about cinematographer of Lawrence Arabia, uh, a film, I believe, is uh, A Foreign Affair. I'm not sure the title of that. Um, and Young had flashed the negative. It was a color film, and he wanted to desaturate and give a different look to it. And I think people were getting tired of the, you know, the color had come in, Eastman color had come in, and now films all had to be in color, and black and white was really on, was gone, practically. Very few films were done, I think, the longest day. It was one of the last big black and white film. Uh Exceptions were uh, Connie Hall's uh, uh, In Cold Blood. But black and white was really on its way out, and I think there was an oppression of color. Vilmos didn't like the bright color of Eastman color. It was you know, the, you know, the colors of films were all of the same palette, and I think Altman was wanted to, was rebelling against that too. And it was a period of, of rebellion, after all. Uh, the American New Wave was just happening; it was late coming, It was ten years late coming here. But I think that was part of that that instinct to make things different. The thing the thing behind Easy Rider: go out on the road and shoot this road movie, shoot it differently, have a different a- aspect. Uh, Altman wanting to turn the Western upside down, not shoot it like all the thousand other Westerns we've seen, and not have the color be the same. And so Vilmos, and he discussed this way of making it look like old photographs. Um, if you Vilmos talked about seeing autochromes, which was early color photography, which had a limited color palette and more desaturated, and the colors weren't so vibrant. And so by experimented, he experimented with the flashing technique of pre-flashing and post-flashing the film, where literally, for the audience doesn't know, you're literally doing something very dangerous. You're doing a controlled fogging of the film, either before or after it's exposed in the camera. And the amount of light you put there desaturates. It ruins the blacks. And, um, but when it's done well, it has an extraordinary effect because it really changes the look of the movie. And so for something that was being trying to transport our audience back to 1900, this was a, a perfect technique. Now, of course, Warner Brothers would never allow that to be done in Hollywood. And I think that was another reason Altman wanted to get away from the studio. He'd, he'd worked in television. He'd done 100 episodes of you know, Bonanza and Combat and all these TV shows. He, he wanted to get as far away as he could from <laughs> studio interference. And being in Vancouver afforded him that. And then he went to the Alpha Cine Lab in Vancouver which was just a little 16 lab and said um, we'd like you to do this film but you have to buy 35 millimeter processing and well what if we pay you the whole lab uh, bill up front in advance? So they said yes and they had they bought their 35 millimeter (laughs) processing and they wanted to be the only one in the bath so they were the only film being run through the bath. They can manipulate the bath and um, and also manipulate the uh, the fogging. So they, the the lab was very compliant to Altman's and Vilmos's wishes. They shot like this, and of course, no instant dailies. This is this is great. We love this because there's nobody looking over your shoulder like 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 today, where they instantly see the stuff from the set practically. <laughs> So the dailies go back, you know, they, get, they have to be shipped back to Warner Bros. It takes a few days. They get around to looking at it, and they go, what the F? What's wrong with this guy? Who, what are they doing? This photography is terrible. It's all foggy. What is this? And Altman's great lie was, oh, it's OK. The negative's completely fine. This lab up here doesn't know what they're doing. It'll, it's, everything's OK. Well, this went on for a couple of weeks. And finally, they, got, they, they realized that, no, this is what the film looks like. But uh, they got past that, and uh, you know, we thank Robert Altman for being such a courageous and, yeah. and inventive character. Um, Vilmos himself had doubts about the flashing. He, he felt they were doing too much. And he said one day he did a little less flashing, and the dailies the next day, Altman said, Vilmos, what have you done? You've, got, you've gone away from our look. And um, he said, well, go back to what we were doing. Don't be afraid. So it's interesting... Um, you know, as artists, you know, you you, you kind of second-guess yourself sometimes. Sure. Then later, when the end of the movie was being filmed, because they were filming pretty much in chronological order, Altman said to Vilmos, you remember when you did less flashing, it was the look was clearer? We should do that for the end. So if you look carefully at the end of the film in the snow sequence, there's less flashing. It's minimal. Uh, Altman... Realize he wanted more clarity for that part of it, very impressionistic at the beginning, in the middle, and then clarity as the as the drama unfolds and comes to a conclusion at the end
1: and uh, if I understood him correctly, I think Lee Klein at Criterion had suggested that there was something about that later snow sequence that also was an issue where Vilmos wasn't happy with or
0: was... No one was really happy. The way the snow sequence was done, what happened was they had a big snowstorm. They started filming. It was an enormous blizzard. They filmed sequences with real snow. I mean, the the church burning down. When the church burns down and the people get the steam tractor and they go up on the buildings and get the buckets of water and the bucket brigade, a lot of that is real snow. Then the sequence had to continue where Warren Beatty's character, McCabe, is being chased by the bounty hunters. And some of that is real snow, some of it is light snow, some of it has no snow. snow on the ground, happily. So, what to do? How do we match this? And this is pre-digital, way pre-digital. So, what they did is they erected a large area, put black tarp, tarps, it must have been uh, 40 or 60 feet across, and then did artificial snow and photographed that artificial snow against black. Mm-hmm. And that would be superimposed on the footage that needed it. So they shot a, quite a bit of it, but Vilmos was always unhappy with the balance of colors. sometimes. Sometimes the snow, the, the artificial snow color was slightly different than the real snow of the previous shot. You know, there would be a tone. And this is kind of the, the limitations of the optical chemical process. You couldn't attack those tones. Now, today, digitally, we can, we can go, we can say, oh, that, that shouldn't be yellow snow. In fact, Vilmusch said, Jimmy, no yellow snow. Snow is not yellow. because <laughs> there would be yellow snow or something? Or the snow would be too blue and so forth. And they'd jump a reel and it would be, a, the snow would be a different color. So these are all things that are frustrating. Now. I said to Vilmos. I said, Vilmos said he and Altman were never completely happy with that. Even the, I said, Vilmos, you know, as an audience goer, I never thought about it. Right. I, I believed it. It yeah. never bothered yeah. me. You're so close to it, you can't see it. You, you know what went into it. So in looking at the, um, at the snow thing, I told Lee all this that Vilmos was never happy. I said, this is this is where you do you restore exactly what it was. Or do you try to make the correction? So Lee tried to make the correction, and we identified a couple of, first of all, the color of the snow would be consistent with the shot. That's, and I think that's not violating anything Altman or Vilmosh would have said themselves. If Vilmosh had been sitting there, he would have fixed it. There was one part of the loop, as you watch the film enough times, you see, I called it the swirl. There was this one section where the snow swirled And it seemed to catch a little black light. It's an error. And I said to Lee, I said, you should suppress the highlight on that little section of snow. just so Because it's a little bit of an eyesore. It's a little bit of a poke in the eye. It's not right, because it's a cloudy day. Why does that look? And it also draws attention to the fact that the snow is a loop. Mm -hmm. The other thing is, you're using the same snow footage over and over again. So he attacked that, and we'll see how how good it is.
1: Um well I wanna finish up by talking a little bit about Close Encounters with Vilmos Sigmund, which is a documentary that premiered at Cannes this year. Uh and I was wondering if you'd talk a little bit about what that film is and your role in it and how you came to be involved.
0: Then um I was helping Vilmos and Anthony Bourdain's uh, Parts Unknown. Uh they were doing a pro they did also this the third documentary on Vilmos. I recommend it highly. Anthony Bourdain, Parts Unknown, Budapest. He did his whole hour about Budapest, and he framed it around the life of Vilmos Zygmunt. So I helped with a Hungarian revolution footage that I had had acquired from the National Archive. And um, I know Vilmos had a really good time shooting it with Bourdain. Again, a different take. It just shows you have different filmmakers have a different take on the same subject. And we loved the uh, film and do love him so much. He came back in January uh, 2015 from uh, Budapest. He had a cold. But he had called up earlier. And he said, Jimmy, could you help uh, Pierre Filmon, he's French filmmaker. He's doing a film about me. They don't have any money, They're the same old story. But help him out. So I ended up shooting the whole American half of, that, of Pierre's film, and, and quite happy to, because he Covered different ground than I had covered in my film, Laszlo and Vilmos. And um, so Pierre came to town. Um, we shot here at the American Society of Cinematographers. We did a three camera convocation Vilmos, Caleb Deschanel, Yuri Neyman, Fred Goodage, Haskell Wexler, um, Steve Goldblatt. I'm maybe leaving someone out, I'm trying to think. And it was, a, it was kind of a round table, cinematographers in the bar. Um, it does seem like we're having drinks, even though no alcohol was consumed. <laughs> there was a suggestion that we have alcohol, and somehow, surprisingly, the French said no. <laughs> but it is sort of a little let-your-hair-down talk about the lives of cinematographers and kind of the generosity of spirit that I spoke of earlier. Really, the generosity of spirit here among cinematographers everywhere is sort of remarkable. And so I was happy to film that, and, uh, and filmed Vilmosh. And then we took a road trip up the coast to Big Sur to Vilmosh's home up there with Susan. And we filmed in his home. And um, uh, I filmed a very beautiful um, portrait of Vilmosh in his old, his old beach house. The house original to the property um, is a wooden structure, open beam, post and beam structure. It looks like the carpenters from McCabe and Mrs. Miller built it. It has a wood burning stove, it's smoky. It's kind of quaint. He has a modern house behind it, but he was in the old house and he was uh, looking through photographs from the Deer Hunter and others' productions and uh, having a conversation with Pierre. And uh, I had to choose earlier the lights I would bring. I had some little LED lights, but I chose to bring one Fresnel, classic Fresnel spotlight, a Fresnel HMI. And which, which is the most powerful thing I could plug in there, because there's no <laughs> generator. And I knew I needed that because it was so brilliant outside and bright, and that, that big Sur Coast lives up on a cliff above the ocean. I wanted to be able to balance that. And then I'd only realized it afterwards, looking at the film, that, yeah, I had picked the right light, because Vilmos was a classicist. Even though he was experimental and did all these, he would improvise with anything, you know, with bed sheets and pieces of paper and uh, any kind of light source. He was, at heart, a classicist. He loved using the Fresnel light. So for that final portrait I did of Bill Mosh, it was that Fresnel spotlight. And I'm very, very happy that I used that light. He taught me that. Um, You know, I
1: think I speak for filmmakers and film fans everywhere when I say, you know, we're all very grateful to you for the work you've done to just continue to share Vilmos's work and legacy and be you know the fact that you're not just a filmmaker but a sort of film scholar and evangelist preaching the gospel of well, this kind of filmmaking thank you for that vilmos
0: comes from vilmos and laszlo because they were um, always remained students of cinematography they always wanted to learn, and they was on. They always wanted to pass on their knowledge, and they and, and Vilmos expressly told me that you know he helped me out. He said uh, early on back in Witches of Eastwick, he said, uh, "When you are successful, and you will be, I want you to help the next person."
1: Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me uh, today, James. And. Uh, this has been Jim Hempo and James Chrysanthus for the American Cinematographer Podcast. Uh, be on the lookout for No Subtitles Necessary, Close Encounters with Wilmer Zygmunt, and the Criterion McCabe and Mrs. Miller that's on the way this fall. And uh, like I said, if you want to see McCabe and No Subtitles Necessary on the big screen, September 23rd in uh, Santa Monica at the Arrow Theater.
0: This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography.